Dear listeners, welcome to Medicine Today on Digital Health, the podcast on how technological progress in medicine and healthcare is being implemented in different parts of the world. After talking about India, Sweden, Slovenia, Germany and other countries, we are going to United States of America today. speaker of the show today is Indu Subaya, the CEO of Health 2.0, a global organization for promotion and research of digital technology for health, wellness and healthcare. It's been launched in 2006 and quite a few things happened that year. The One Billion Song was purchased from Apple iTunes. Google purchased YouTube. Everyone with an email address could sign up for Facebook, the then new social media only two years in existence. However, a lot of things also didn't exist yet. We did not talk about AI, machine learning, virtual reality, Internet of Things, and all sorts of implantables, wearables, digestibles, and other sensors as something normal. After all, the first iPhone was launched hardly in 2007. You will hear from Indu about why she chose not to stay an MD and go into conference organization. She talks about why she's optimistic about interoperability in healthcare and healthcare progress with technology in general. Um, my first question would be about your background. So you're the CEO of Health 2.0 and Health 2.0 now has a very nice legacy of 11 years. However, you were uh, a trained MD. So how did you go into the whole digital health space? It was uh, definitely a progression. It didn't happen overnight. But even when I was in medical school, uh, during my fourth year, I became very interested in the adoption of, uh, at the time, we used to call them handheld uh, devices for physicians, uh, the PDAs. And I did a project in my fourth year of medical school to look at the policy of HIPAA and uh, privacy protections and security for these devices in the hospital. And as I did this sort of research consulting project, I realized I was really interested in kind of new modalities and technology. And I, I also very much loved interacting with patients, but this sense of doing something that hadn't been done before was, was very exciting to me in medicine. Um, there's definitely innovation, but so much of our training is to ensure quality and in, ensure sort of um, uh, processes remain the same in a sense so that you can actually treat patients according to protocols. And I found myself just very interested in, in thinking about things from scratch, you know, what happens when you have nothing. And over time, um, that evolved into wanting to do my own technology startup and in the process of doing that and thinking through how the web, um, connectivity, social networks could help us share information in, in healthcare better. Um, I was an entrepreneur in residence at a venture fund in San Francisco incubating that idea. And I met Matthew Holt, my partner now in, in Health 2.0. I did not intend to start a conference company at all. I, I was much more interested in starting a technology company. And we said, well, why don't we get a few people together to think about uh, technology in a new way? Um, because I was wanting to promote my startup idea. And at the end of the day, the startup idea failed. <laughs> and 
the conference idea uh, really grew. And so sometimes you don't know where life is going to take you. And so that's how I ended up in this, in this role. Uh, what was the idea for the technology startup? What well, the funny, the funny thing about that is um, the idea was that as a patient, you should be able to share your information with all of your doctors and all of your doctors should be able to see your information. <laughs> that same idea um, has been executed on so beautifully in pieces by so many other startups that have come since. So it just shows you that sometimes um, the problem, you know, there isn't one solution to the problem. And also we haven't completely solved that problem either. You know, so today I think if I had to do that same company today, it would still be valid, but the approach would be very different. Knowing all the exciting technologies from augmented reality, big data analytics, machine learning, um, do you still kind of see yourself as an MD or how do you ever think about how your training would look like if you were, were studying today? I think uh, my training would be incredibly more interesting today. And I think anybody going into medicine today uh, is facing a very exciting future. The other thing that's changing in addition to the technologies that are helping physicians, I think that people are understanding a lot more about how to see patients as the whole patient to take into consideration, you know, all of the aspects of human health. I think when I was training, you kind of learned, well, you're, you're well, or you're sick. I think today's sort of, you know, physician in training is look is learning about genomics it's learning about all of the profound variation even in a healthy body uh, so that when we do progress toward illness we have a lot more tools at our disposal I think the idea of the community and the environment we live in there's so much progress being made there so I think um, I probably uh, may not have left medicine if I were training today it would have been too fascinating but at the same time um, there, there have been problems with practicing medicine with old technologies. In the U.S., we have a huge problem of physician burnout. And uh, much of that, studies have shown that it is related to the use of the EMR. And so I'm, I'm really excited about the new technologies. At the end of the day, providers' lives are going to be fundamentally changed, whether it's because you don't have to spend hours, you know, manually typing in data to the EMR because you can use something like voice or use... Um, whether it's, uh, you know, being able to see patients in the home just for five minutes virtually instead of, you know, having your whole day clogged. Uh, I studied medicine on a human cadaver and it's amazing to think that you could just do this in a virtual way. So from education as well. And, um, I think also the other challenge for physicians is keeping up with knowledge and it's impossible. It's impossible. And so whether you are thinking of companies like Watson, almost Every company now is using some kind of machine learning to capture the state of science today. And I think that's a big, big uh, help to doctors because you have, it's changing so fast. Every aspect of a physician's experience or a nurse or any other kind of provider is, is changing. And hopefully it's, it's for the better and it hopefully allows them to actually practice, you know, medicine the way they, they intended to and, and get back to the heart of it. 
looking at the technological uh, advancement, a lot of potential and optimism is there. Um, however, when we're talking about integrating new technologies into the existing systems, specifically EMR that you mentioned, the big issue, especially in the US market, is the vendor lock-in of, of the EHR systems, which um, don't really allow for the extern external innovation to um, be integrated a lot into the system. So kind of from a critical perspective, how much do you see the systems have changed in the 11 years since you've been following this very closely with Health 2.0 and where do you see the, the system could actually be in, in 10 years? I mean, a lot of um, medical centers are building their own innovation centers, trying to get additional revenue with startup solutions and trying to encourage innovation and see what's going out on the outside, but at the end of the day, the vendor of the EHR system is still the same, very rigid, a lot of lack of in interoperability. Up until two years ago, I would have said, I, I would have been very pessimistic that the existing EHR players would allow for a lot of these innovative new companies and applications to integrate with them. And then I learned about FIRE, right? And, and some of these new, um, ways in which the EMRs are allowing APIs to connect and opening up their fire APIs. And I think these, these new interoperability standards, uh, we called this and blockchain sort of the two mechanical components of, of the new interoperability. I think that with fire for the first time, I'm seeing, um, applications integrated in a way that was, that is much more seamless and it's much faster. It doesn't disrupt workflow as much so that physicians don't have to log out of the EHR and then log into a separate system. They're able to work in the environment of the EHR without leaving the EHR because of some of these technologies and that's just technology on a cultural level. There's been a shift as well. And, um, Anish Chopra spoke yesterday very much about the work he and his collaborators are doing to push hospital CIOs to say, there's no excuse. There is no excuse not to open up. He reported that over 35 U.S. hospitals have opened up these APIs and he wants all of the hospitals to do it. So I think it's a technology, um, change. But it also needs to be a cultural change. That's the big, uh, the big challenge always when it comes to healthcare solutions right. implementations because there are so many stakeholders and because people don't really like change. And right. also Anish mentioned on the stage, like his words, words exactly what we have the solution. Please use it. And I think that there is a fear that, you know, in the old, old world of health 2.0, uh, of healthcare, that data belongs to the institution, that that is the institution's competitive, you know, advantage. It's, it's the value that they offer if they sort of hold and own their data. And that's where we ask the question, you know, this year at Health 2.0, well, how do we redefine value? Um, we're going to have to think about it in a whole different way. And players that are holding on to data, thinking it's their value advantage are, are, are not going to, are not going to win. So whether we think of institutions as, you know, the um, almost flipping the logic and saying the more open you are, the more you're able to share data, the more value you're offering and, and helping um, those organizations understand the economic 
value proposition there is also a challenge because I don't think it's just fear of change. I think it's fear of losing, you know, market share and, and revenue. That's a very good point because when we are talking about savings and the savings, the so-called wasted money in healthcare is someone's revenue. Right. Know? So that's right. the thing you have to almost, you have to disrupt someone or push him out to get that saving. That's right. I, I know it's, it's funny. I think it was a couple of years ago. Everybody says, you know, something like $2.4 trillion is spent in healthcare. And, and I sort of crossed out the word spent and I wrote uh, $2.3 trillion are made in healthcare. And if you think about the fact that someone is making that money, the switch and you realize, yeah, you're going to, not everybody's going to be aligned with saving. A lot of companies are working on different kinds of solutions, you know, to tackle interoperability. So it's not like there's not enough smart people trying to, to tackle the problem. There's platforms, there's connectivity channels, um, different ideas on how to make it easier for a patient to go from one hospital to another. Yet the actual results are still not quite there, are they? I think though, you know, some of it, it also has to do with how data is being stored. So if you're talking about sort of local storage versus cloud, uh, that's a big piece of it. So you can have all of the standards for sharing, but if it's bulky and, and cumbersome, you know, to actually uh, move, you know, data, that's a limitation. And similarly now with blockchain and the idea that, you know, data can kind of stay where it is, but that you can kind of control it with different kind of access technologies. That's a whole new approach. So I, I, I agree. There have been so many efforts, but we needed both some fundamental technology chain change like fly, uh, fire and blockchain. And we've needed cultural change and we've needed some of the economic incentives to change. And I think slowly they are, and they are, I think, converging in a way that's exciting now. So we'll see, you know, if, if that continue, that continues to converge. For a long time, you've been talking about unmentionables. Now you've turned that into the unacceptables. So could you maybe elaborate a bit more on how uh, these specific topics are being chosen, how you develop the ideas? So uh, the unmentionables uh, was brought to us by our colleague and friend, uh, Alexandra Drain, and she had done a lot of research on t- into how there are parts of your life that are not connected to your health that actually affect your health more than your health. <laughs> so for example, if you're under uh, financial stress or you have a relationship uh, challenge or you, um, you know, are suffering from sleep issues, that these actually can make somebody with diabetes have much worse outcomes than if they have social support, if they're le- leading a more mindful life, if they have healthy relationships, etc. So she brought to our attention this topic of the unmentionables. And for six years at Health 2.0, she led a discussion of how healthcare organizations, the mainstream of healthcare needs to pay attention to these. And that's why they were called the unmentionables because she said we didn't talk about them enough. And and her goal was to get the healthcare industry to talk more about it. And after six years, she has really succeeded. So now many U.S. healthcare plans um have programs around stress management, have programs around, um, meditation. We are seeing, uh, 
caregiver burden being addressed and programs for that. Uh, people taking into consideration what we call the social determinants of health, right? Does somebody have um, adequate housing? Can they, can they afford to come to their doctor's office? Do they have transportation? Uh, so, so she sort of retired the unmentionables and where we picked up is we said, okay, it's true that we're tack- uh, we're talking about some of these issues, but we still have huge disparities and there are disparities in, in health, um, in, in, in our country around the world, uh, that we think we should not tolerate and therefore they're unacceptable and they're unacceptable because we have the means to improve and we need to. This year we've highlighted a number of entrepreneurs who are working on very tough issues and they're making maybe a small bit of progress, but um, our job is to sort of shine the light on it and say, what else can we do? So um, suicide in our veteran population, loneliness among seniors, uh, addiction specifically to, you know, a prescribed medications that then leads to opioid abuse. Um, we're looking at sexual assault on campuses, uh, both men and women as, as sort of victims and, uh, diversity. So, you know, there aren't enough, uh, you know, women represented in, in healthcare and technology, both fields. So we're looking at the set of issues and then we're seeing what are people, um, what are the innovative solutions people have to work on them? So we'll be showcasing a number of those. What's your opinion about the whole uh, gender issue? It has been opened up many times this year. And it's especially women are, women of color are underrepresented. So it's not just women. It's not just in the programming world, but it's up in the sort of higher C-suite level that we're seeing, you know, very, very small numbers, like 6%, you know, 8% of, of senior leadership. I think that there's no, you know, easy fix. There are many complicated factors that go into it uh, from, you know, early education and science and technology and engineering and math, all the way into factors around women leaving the workforce to start families. So we do need to have better policies in the workplace to accommodate for, for paid leave. Uh, when people do start families, I think it has to do with role modeling and seeing that you can kind of have success at a very high level of, of leadership and that there are other women that are doing it. So, uh, and this issue of mentorship. So, uh, people find that, that that mentor relationship makes a huge difference in getting people to sort of not drop out. So I think it's multiple, um, factors that have led to these outcomes. And so therefore there's not just one solution that's going to immediately overnight, uh, change it. You know, I have a, have a young son and I'm seeing even at, at that age programs in his school that are encouraging girls in, in, in the, in the math and technology and engineering subject areas. We're seeing mentorship programs like the one that Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has sponsored here. Um, Lisa Sunin is going to be talking about her organization. It's a nonprofit called C-Sweetener and it's the idea of how to get women more into the C-suite and, and keep them, um, in touch with mentors and support. So I see a lot of effort going into it. And, you know, even when we do conferences, we have to be sensitive, right? That we don't just showcase like five men on a panel or, you know, and, and it's difficult, you know, even as a conference organizer, sometimes, uh, you have to sort of stop and really, make sure that you're being mindful about those decisions. How much knowledge from conferences from different uh, places 
can you um, kind of combine into different uh, events? So, for example, um, you will also have Health 2.0 in Japan, and uh, problems there are much uh, different. Uh, in my view, I think that Japan, with the aging population, um, has sort of an opportunity that if they build solutions, good solutions for the elderly population now, they will be a potential market leader, let's say in 10 years where the, where the demographic pyramid is going to look similar in other countries as well. So things like that, how much do you see the differences in market needs and the potential exchange of knowledge in terms of solutions? I expected to see a lot more um, difference, you know, between countries when we sort of started doing Health 2.0. And what has always surprised me is, yes, there are differences. There are demographic differences. There are, you know, um, sort of physical differences, like literally the size of countries, you know, China versus a small country in Europe, right? But it's amazing to me how much is also similar and that we need regardless of the country and the set of circumstances, there is an increasing need, for example, for healthcare systems to, to do more with less, with fewer resources. So, um, the role of technology in a sense is similar. So like whether it's in India to use sort of telemedicine or remote monitoring because it's a rural, you know, village to back to the home or it's in America because, you know, you, you can't, you know, the person is, doesn't want to come in for a visit because it would be a disruption to their lifestyle. The technology might actually be pretty similar. And, um, similarly with sort of self tracking and self management, you know, you might be reporting if a patient wants to sort of track their diet and nutrition. Sure you know, our, how we eat is very different around the world, but the fact of having to capture that data, um, and be more informed about our choices, that is a pretty universal need. So I agree with you though, in terms of regions taking a leadership role, because they'll acquire expertise. Absolutely. I see, um, I see not just Japan, I see also Korea. Uh, there's a growing community there around aging and, and healthy aging and wellness and aging. Um, I think that, in Europe, the idea that a lot of those countries have centralized health systems, uh, they can do a lot more because all of that data is in one place. So, you know, whether it's like the genomic analysis in Iceland, right? Uh, so they might take a lead because they can integrate their data so beautifully. And, um, you know, in the U.S., of course, we have sort of pockets like, you know, Silicon Valley and others. So because certain startup ecosystems might do more, we may see some variation. So, I, I, I think it's, it's both. I think there's the universal and, and some regional variation. But we, to your point, um, we did a program in India in partnership with the World Bank and it was to help Indian hospitals work with the best digital health companies. I think just 60% of those companies came from the U.S. The rest, actually, a huge chunk came from Israel, um, a chunk came from Europe, and then there was a chunk from India itself. So, it's interesting. It's not just, um, you know, the U.S. by any means. And p countries that are taking a lead in, in digital health have markets that are not just the U.S. So they themselves might be markets. They might be exporting to other countries. I think it's fascinating. I think we're going to see a lot of um, interesting dynamics going on there. 
how much underestimate of um, foreign market do you see in startups? What I mean in that sense is that, for example, uh, developing countries are often seen as a to-go-to playground mm-hmm. because nothing is there, but um, culture can be so much different there that your solution is impossible to implement, which is one yeah. thing. And the second problem is that maybe um, the environment itself is so much different and has such different problems that your solution is actually not even applicable to that market. And of, when we're talking about the, the growing penetration of the internet, um, a lot of young people are hungry for from for knowledge and with a good understanding of the environment in the developing countries maybe Africa or India are building up their own solutions yeah. so in that sense maybe how much do you, do you see there is still a space for for the developed countries to go to the developing ones and the other way around you know i think the the best you know way of thinking about that is to let uh the market in a sense play out because, you know, in India, for example, there are cultural needs that maybe companies from India are better at serving, but maybe they have other technology needs that, you know, companies in Israel or Europe or the U.S. have an advantage in. So I think if we just open up borders and think about, you know, who does what best, it'll probably be a mix in any given region. Um, it probably should be a mix of homegrown solutions, uh, solutions that have come from abroad because they're just the best and they've figured something out that we can learn from. So that's my hope that people don't think of it as it only has to be a company from that place. Um, and, you know, vice versa, these emerging markets also are coming up with ingenious um, solutions that then can go and be exported to the developing world. So um, that that's, you know, happening as well. Okay. Maybe just a, a last question. Yeah. Um, what's the further plan for health 2.0 and maybe what's the reflection for the last 11 years? How do you see the whole space? Is it still exciting to you? Do Is it so exciting that you want to go back to medicine? So where's your thinking right. in that sense? Well, I think um, some of the excitement from this particular conference that you saw was around what the big technology giants are going to do in healthcare. So, um, you know, following Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Google, uh, as well as Microsoft, I think that is going to be a shift. Seven, eight years ago, when people thought those companies were going to come into healthcare, it was very different. They didn't have some of those open API standards we talked about. Uh, they maybe didn't have the actual uh, footprint in healthcare, but now with, you know, the Apple Watch having so many health indicators, now with Google getting into life science data, et cetera, it's a very different time. And I think one of the most exciting things to watch will be to see how, um, like Alexa, by Amazon will come into healthcare, how Google Cloud, Google Home um, will come in. So that is one of the most exciting things about right now. And I think for Health 2.0, it's, you know, we, our conference business has now um, become acquired and is a part of HIMSS, which is the large health IT uh, association and, and conference. And so we will be, I think, partnering with them to, you know, broaden the reach of, of, of 
IT and, and go to different parts of the world. I was talking to, with another friend who's been in the same space for the last 10 years too. And it's like, we think, okay, when is this going to stop? And it always feels like it's just starting, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, even 10 years later, it's like, but it's just starting. So we'll see. So you're optimistic. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> but not going back to medicine. No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> This was the 19th episode of Medicine Today on Digital Health. I'm happy to say that quite a few future podcast topics are already known. The next one will be on how different top medical centers in the U.S. are working with startups, creating innovation centers, and implementing digital solutions. You will hear from representatives from UPMC, Mount Sinai, and Stanford. Stay curious, stay tuned, and subscribe to the podcast to be informed about the new episode automatically.